0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: Hello, this is Breaking Views, The Exchange. I'm Anna Szymanski. I'm very happy to have as my guest today Paula Kerger, CEO of PBS. Today, we're going to talk about the unique structure of PBS and also how public media fits into the evolving landscape. I am very happy to welcome the CEO of PBS, Paula Kerger. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So we'll just kind of jump right into it here. Great. Um, Actually, the first thing I'd like to ask is just a little bit about your background, like kind of how you came to this role. Yeah. So
0: um, I've been uh, the uh, CEO of PBS for 13 and a half years. And I spent the 13 years prior to that at WNET in New York. Uh, in a variety of roles. My last role was as the uh, station manager and COO. Uh, so, uh, a good part of my professional career has been in public media, mm-hmm. uh, but the rest of my career was all in, in nonprofits. I okay. started uh, working after college for UNICEF. I ran the Trick or Treat for UNICEF program, and, and then I worked for a couple other nonprofits. I even worked at the Metropolitan Opera for oh. a brief period, in, <laughs> not in a singing capacity. That would have been truly frightening. But, um, but public television has really been my home.
1: Great. And and I'm also kind of a little bit curious because you are the only woman who is the head of a national broadcasting network. Yeah, so how did I'm, that
0: happen? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm just curious about in terms of kind of what, what you think about um, your role as a woman mm-hmm. and um, also your thoughts about the fact that you are the only woman.
0: Yeah. And I've also been in this role uh, for... Uh, for such a long time, uh, actually longer than I thought uh, as well. So it's a surprise to me too. And the um, and the thing that's interested in during a period of such tremendous change mm-hmm. uh, to, um, as some of the television critics will say to me, you're, you've become sort of the dean of the industry. I don't know <laughs> about that. But I, I think that uh, for me, as I look around C-suites, not just in media, but also Uh, in other um, sectors, there still aren't a lot of women. And uh, I actually was just in a conversation over lunch today with a woman who is in a fairly significant role in media and uh, talking about why there aren't more women in in C-suites. And and I think that, um, you know, look, media is hugely powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that if you believe that it has an impact on uh, the people that we serve, the people that we reach. Um, I think media organizations should represent the communities they serve, and so I think having more women in 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 roles like mine, I think, is is an important thing. I don't get up every day thinking, "Wow, well, I'm one of the few or only <laughs> women running a media organization," but I am aware of what that means, mm-hmm. and that sometimes people look at me. And they assume that decisions I make and the way that I run the organization is because I'm a woman leader. I wish they would look at me and say, well, she's a leader and this is her style. Uh, But I want to make sure, as Sandra Day O'Connor used to always say, it's not uh, important to be first. You don't want to be last. And so I just am perhaps even more mindful than Mm -hmm. others that... Uh, the decisions I make and the way that I conduct myself in my business not just reflects on me personally, but also reflects on half of the human race. And so <laughs> a sorry, I don't mess it up for anybody else. <laughs> no, no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And, and, you know, that kind of idea also about um, you know the importance of diversity and, and especially in media, as you're saying, with the idea of obviously that's probably going to affect programming. And, you know, one of the things that I've always found really interesting about PBS is the fact that it's not like one PBS. It's all of these no. different local. And I'm kind of curious that relationship between all of these different voices and how PBS is structured. Well, there's actually a lot of really
0: interesting threads in what you just said because it's it's also – We're also a variety service, too. So in addition to all the stations, we are a producer of children's content as well as a producer of of content that reaches uh, a larger adult audience. And, you know, we are involved in news and entertainment and other things. And so... um, You know, diversity is is really, uh, can be interpreted in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, one of the things that I think is important about public broadcasting is, and that people don't understand, is I don't run a network. I run, in some respects, um, I guess an analogous network. Uh, Structure would be a, um, you know, sort of a co-op. All of our stations are all locally owned, operated, and governed. And Mm -hmm. at a time of great media consolidation, many of our stations are the last remaining uh, media organizations at the local level. Um, And uh, they all come together. They all came together to form PBS. Uh, So it's sort of the network model sort of flipped upside down. And the idea is that uh, at scale we could do a lot if we work collaboratively together. And so I often joke that a lesson in humility is to run a (laughs) federated organization like mine. I have a lot of responsibility, not always ultimate authority to make all decisions. And so it's really important when you're running an organization with this kind of structure Uh, to be able to take advantage of the diversity of our stations. We have stations in very small communities like Cookville, Tennessee, or um, Wyoming PBS, or very large markets like New York or Boston or Washington or LA. And um, each one brings something a little different to the table and being able to really take advantage of um, all of those different perspectives in the work that we do I think is hugely important. It's also important well, maintaining that diversity, to have sort of a common sense of purpose. And mm-hmm. that's the glue that keeps everything together. We are on the cusp of celebrating our 50th anniversary at PBS. And this whole idea of this system that could serve the public by coming together and creating series like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, or A Sesame Street, or a great performances or a news hour or frontline, all of that is possible because all the stations joined together, pulled
1: resources, and made those programs possible. And kind of jumping off of that, like what would you say is PBS's mandate? Well, our mandate is is
0: and and it was the same when we were formed fifty years ago as it as it is today, which is uh, recognizing that commercial media has a very specific and important role. Mm-hmm. Is that there is a lot of media opportunities that a nonprofit media service can fill. So we look at our goal as providing programming that is well we hope entertaining but really and when we hit our mark is really educational inspirational. And Mm -hmm. so it is very much um, using media in the public service in its in its truest and broadest sense, and that was true when there were four stations in public television, and it certainly uh, continues to be true as we look at this, you know, very rapidly changing um, swirl of media. We want to continue to be that space for thoughtful conversation for. Uh, topics that don't get well covered other places. Mm-hmm. That's why we are, uh, we're proudly America's home for documentary. You know, right. we are always looking for those stories that we think deserve to
1: be told, but aren't often swept up in, um, in the coverage from other media pl- places. Are, are there any stories that kind of jump out at you maybe in the last year or so that you think PBS handled really well in a way that you didn't see in other places? Well, we just finished one, and it was a really big
0: project, and that's Ken Burns' Country Music series, and it's been a it's been an, an amazing series to uh, to be a part of. Uh, you're never sure when you start a new project, um, you know how it will fit. I think this one, uh, particularly, I think at this time, had a a lot of resonance because the, the stories are so profoundly American stories of of triumph and challenge and. Heartbreak and all of those stories that define not only the genre of country music, but the but the people that um, that brought that music to us. And I think that it is um, I think it's often through the arts that you can have a very different kind of conversation about who we are as Americans. And I think country music very much was a was a piece of that. The, the, the project was interesting. It's probably the first project Ken did Ken was involved in Ken Burns was involved in, that did not have any historians in it. It was really all performers talking about their experiences and sort of an oral tradition passed down. And I think through that was very authentic and, and really quite powerful. And many people wanted to participate. Uh, because they felt that their story had not been told. Now, that's a really big, sweeping story. We have a documentary coming up that has been um, uh, a little bit on the theatrical uh, circuit, a uh, documentary from Frontline called Four Sama, which is about uh, Syria, mm-hmm. told from the perspective of um, uh, a woman who is, um, is creating this film for her baby, not sure whether she will be around to oh, wow. um, to tell the story of what has happened in Syria and I think that this is an important story. Syria obviously is, is a story that many people are interested in but by looking at it through the lens of her child I think it becomes a much more accessible way of understanding um, what is happening there and the consequence of it and so I think again there are a lot of stories about Syria but I think this one um, the angle that that the storyteller that the filmmaker has has chosen to
1: take has made this I think very different and unique mm-hmm. I mean you know one thing that's always jumped out at me about PBS is that even though it's always covering often you know quite difficult stories it, it, it does it in a way that I feel like it kind of brings people in, right. and you know I'm kind of curious if you could talk about at this moment when we have like such polarized media, like what is the kind of role that PBS plays, like specifically about kind of bringing Americans together? It's
0: it's really something that I think is is has always been important, but I think as as you just. Highlighted, I think is probably more important than ever. I think we, we somehow have lost the ability to do what you and I are doing, which is um, your, your audience is not going to see this, but we're looking at Time. each other <laughs> across a table, having a conversation face to face. And I think that um, it is difficult for people to do that now, particularly if you're not sure what someone's beliefs are or what someone's opinions. And we get um, you know, very hesitant about having honest conversations, and I think part of it, um, the the larger media industry has fed into because so many um, uh, what are what are categorized as discussions end up being screaming matches, where right. the whole goal is I'm going to persuade you to change to my point of view, and that way I win and you lose. Um, and we forget that so much of our country is built on the fact that we all do come from different perspectives and backgrounds and 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 beliefs. Uh, but somehow we create unity out of really um, having the ability to listen to one another and to talk to one another. And so, um, you know, Gwen Ifill, uh, extraordinary, uh, Gwen Ifill used to always say that she felt that our role in public television was to bring light and not heat to. Um, to our stories. And so NewsHour has always been a place where we try to cover the stories of the day, provide context, uh, but not create an environment for people to scream at one another. And I think that, um, you know, if you look at Fred Rogers, who's having, you know, so now I'm just going from one end of our broadcast spectrum (laughs) to the other. But if you look at Fred Rogers, who's had such a resurgence right now, not just through the documentary film, but through the upcoming film with Tom Hanks, uh, people are gravitating towards him not only because they have a memory of him, looking into the camera and really trying to um, treat every child as a, as an individual of worth, but he had a um, a kindness and a and, and a level of empathy that I think is truly important that I think we're hungering for. And so, you know, we think about Fred Rogers and. And certainly with our kids' programs, that's a lot of the lineage that our programs link back to. But we also think um, as we try to tackle really important issues uh, through the programming that we, um, that we build for our adult audience that um, the same principles of, of empathy and listening to one another and, and trying to get at the authentic stories and, and the truth
1: is really what I think all of us hunger for. And, and how do you think the ability to do that is related to the PBS funding model? Well, I think you know it's
0: it's really interesting because um, you know, so a surprise to your listener. I'm sure, I'm sure we've never been overfunded. So, <laughs> you know, funding has always been complicated for us, and and we get 15. percent, That's one five percent of our funding from the government. Most of that goes to our stations, mm-hmm. and um, most of that really goes to support stations in rural communities in parts of the country. This is why the public television does cover the entire country. Is that Uh, It is this public-private partnership. And so stations in a city like New York, they probably get about 6% of their funding from the federal government. Our station in Cookville, Tennessee, it's more like 60%. And so um, this idea that that this information is accessible to all. And where the largest percentage of our money comes from for most of our stations uh, really is from viewers like you. And I think that if you are asking people to make philanthropic contributions, to dig down in their pockets and to write a check or just you know, to send a a contribution, then you have to be relevant, and you have to be honest, and you have to be trusted. And you only support organizations that you trust and that you believe in. And I think that that part of our structure is what has made us, I think, the organization that we are. And it's part of what really does inform what I always refer to as that
1: guide star
0: that we, we think about as we look at our work moving forward.
1: Yeah and, and one of the things what you were saying there kind of jumped out at me is is again this kind of focus on the parts of America that we don't always think about you know the and you know when we think about the media right now I think there's this idea that like oh everybody has Netflix everybody has all these things and I think people don't realize that for you know many parts of the country PBS is you know a really important if not one of the only sources of Yeah this. I I I often say that we have outsized uh
0: importance and influence in um in um, many parts of the country and that does not necessarily mean the two coasts. I think that Um, obviously we're really proud of our stations in New York and Boston and LA and San Francisco and so forth, but I spend most of my time on the road. Uh, When I took this job, I realized that the only way I was going to be effective is if I really spent time listening and understanding what our stations needed, and that means not only talking to the people that run our stations, but also the communities themselves, and that gave me a better, much better understanding of, of who we are and and what we should be. And I think that um, the other thing that people don't understand is that there are a lot of people in this country that watch television over the air. And uh, and that doesn't mean cable or satellite, that means good old-fashioned uh, broadcast television. Uh, a few years ago, we launched a 24-hour children's channel that was a broadcast channel. And when uh, the head of our children's programming, uh, Leslie Rotenberg, came to me and said, you know, we want to do this, I thought, you've got to be kidding. In this day and age, who launches a broadcast channel? But she brought me a lot of of information and, and data, and I realized that there was a big part of this country—some of it is geography, and some of it's economics—of mm-hmm. people that uh, really do rely on on over-the-air television, and that we had an opportunity uh, to serve um, families in a way that we were not fully realizing. We do eight hours of children's programming a day on our stations, but at night we switch to primetime programming. If we if we put up a, a 24-hour broadcast channel as part of the you know, multicast streams for our stations, that we would reach a lot more children, and, um, and, the, and that has come to be. I mean, our audiences for children's programming are quite large, and for um, the uh, 24-hour ch- channel, we are disproportionately reaching lower-income homes, um, homes where English may not, not be a first language, people in rural communities. And uh, that is um, something that as a country we have to pay attention to. There's an enormous digital divide. And mm-hmm. I think there was this assumption that people would be able to have access to a wider range of information because of, of digital and the Internet. And the reality is that not only there are lots of people that can't afford or don't have access to broadband, But also, as we look at, um, you know, shows like this, if we look at new services and so forth, a lot of that actually still does come from both coasts. And it comes through that sort of that little crescent that goes through, um, you know, Austin and and cascades through. It, it It still isn't fully capturing the voices from around the country. And that's what I hope our local stations can do.
1: And I'm, and I'm curious if when there are cuts in government funding, how does that particularly affect those kind of smaller local stations? It really stations? squeezes them. We just had a two-day meeting of our general managers and we asked
0: of them, you know, how many of them really feel that uh, great anxiety about keeping their lights on. There are about 20 that, you know, raise their hand and that's with flat funding right now. Mm-hmm. So we've been really lucky for the last years that we've been able to at least maintain some level of funding. But um, that, that's why we really do fight so hard for federal funding. The, the good news is that we do have a lot of bipartisan support both sides of the aisle. But I, I do think that um, when people ask what is the consequence of loss of federal funding, you know, I can tell you, um, you know, PBS will still exist, stations in some of the larger cities will exist, Cookville will not. Um, and, you uh, you know, we have a circumstance right now in Alaska where the state also has put money into Alaska public broadcasting. You know, the geographic areas they're covering are so huge, and uh, with those cuts, they're they're barely hanging on. So I think it it really is important if we're going to provide services that continue to provide the services that we do that that funding
1: stays as a piece of it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a, at a time when essentially like local news is all going away, you know, it just seems so important that you have these kind of local voices. I
0: think it's really important. And I also think you haven't asked this yet, but I know you will. <laughs> um, you know, how we survive in this environment of the Netflixes and the Amazons mm-hmm. and so forth. I, look, I can't outspend na- net Netflix. Netflix is spending, I don't know what the number is now, 15 billion a year in content. Yeah. Um they spent more on the production of the first season of The Crown than I spend in our entire con- content budget for a year for both kids and um, adults. So, um, you know, we're just not even, you know, we're not anywhere near that scale. And Amazon, um, you know, obviously has huge reach. But what we do have is presence in local community. We've always tried to leverage what has been a, r- a relatively modest investment. We have great partners that we work with. I think we're seeing that media actually more and more uh-huh. where different media organizations are working together. Each brings something different and unique and I think powerful uh, to the um, to the table. And I think if all of us uh, try to figure out what our unique, um, uh, gifts, and in our case, I think it is our our true localism uh, that actually is is how we you know s- survive and uh, and hopefully prosper in these times.
1: And what
0: is your kind of streaming strategy moving forward? So um, we're available lots of places. I mean, I just I was just talking about uh, country music, and uh, you know it was interesting. Uh, we're still. Um, trying to gather the data of um, you know the size of the audience, we have a sense of what the Nielsen audiences mm-hmm. were, and we don't have those final numbers yet. And but when you start to put together that and the and the streaming. Um, it was interesting because this this series had as large an audience, if not larger, at the end than it did at the beginning. Now, most series sort of go the other way. They mm-hmm. usually start strong and then start to peter off. And I believe part of the success of country music is that we also had it available streamed. And so, you know, for the period around the broadcast, you could go lots of different places and see it. So all of our stations... Um, um, you know, uh, stream content. We have deals, um, uh, video on demand deals with the cable operators. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do have relationships with Amazon and Netflix. That was our old DVD business. (laughs) That, that was always the sort of the third, uh, leg of the stool to help us produce the work. Um, you know, obviously those resources we share with our producers. Um, and so we are distributing them. A lot of our stations, um, Uh, have apps so you can if you have a smart TV you can access content through the app we're on Apple and Roku and on those platforms um, it's we ask you to localize so that uh, you're not only getting PBS content but you're getting your content from WNET or GBH Mm -hmm. or WETA or wherever uh, we also um, just announced uh, a deal with YouTube TV, which is our first uh, live stream deal. And we are hopeful we will have more of those. And I think as more and more people are looking at platforms like that as a mm-hmm. place to access content. Our goal, so if you, your, your original question is what is your digital strategy? Our goal is to be where our viewers are. And so where we, what we want to be able to do is wherever you look for content, we would like to uh, have some presence. And we want we would like to have some presence for our stations, and we want to continually remind people that are consuming content in all those different places that all of that is possible because of the station and viewers like you, so that not only can they find our content but hopefully remember to support
1: their local station because that's the economy that keeps this all moving. What are some of your concerns like what kind of keeps you up at night in related to pBS or kind of the media industry yeah
0: so um Yeah. Look, a lot of things keep me up at night. Um, I always wonder about our funding. Excuse me. I always worry about our funding. I wonder about the funding too, but I always worry about the funding Uh, because, um, you know, we start out every year, you know, really at zero and, and we hopefully bring the kind of philanthropic support in. I'm now working on an effort to try to talk to more and more people about uh, the philanthropic side of public broadcasting, Mm -hmm. because I think it's important uh, to keep that strong and robust. I worry that in this environment that we're in now, uh, something that you worry about, we all worry about, is that we're all competing for people's time. And how do we make sure that we uh, punch above the fray? We don't spend a lot on advertising and promotion. That's why interviews like this are really important. You know, to remind people that PBS is there, that we're not spinach, that we're <laughs> uh, we're really a great destination for, uh, for, for content, <laughs> content, for Downton Abbey, <laughs> and uh, and for uh, and really compelling stories. And and so I I worry a lot about that. I worry that um, and these are all sort of intertwined. I worry that um, that we need to stay nimble enough and be willing to take enough risk that we can experiment and continue to try things. I think in some ways as a nonprofit organization where we have a little bit more latitude because I don't have shareholders that are looking over my shoulder wanting me to monetize everything that we do. But on the other hand, because we do rely on philanthropic support, um, I need to take well-placed risk. And so I just worry that you know, we continue to innovate and and uh, and really give ourselves the the runway to try to um, uh, to look at content in many different ways. And I think if we're able to do all those things, we'll be
1: successful. Yeah, and just another question. I'm kind of curious, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe some of the misconceptions people have about PBS, whether yeah. it's about the content or whether it's about, like, how, how it's structured.
0: Well, it is interesting. So I think that there are a number of misperceptions that people have about PBS. One is they assume we're a network like the others. They don't think they fully appreciate the fact that this is, in fact, a very locally grounded system, and uh, I think that's important. I think the second is that I think people assume that we're just a government, you know, we're government TV, we're state TV, and Mm -hmm. we're not. Uh, uh, a small piece of our funding uh, comes from the government, but we're not like the BBC or NHK or any of the other great uh, international broadcasters. We are, in fact, largely supported by viewers like you. So thank you. Uh, and I think that's that's an important consideration. I think that there are some that think... Um, we have an elite audience. I think they have this notion that maybe it's Alistair Cook sitting in a big, <laughs> you know, overstuffed chair with a pipe. Um, and actually, our audience is uh, very reflective of the country. And I think that probably um, the last mis- uh, misperception that I um, uh, would say is I think sometimes think that because we've had some series that have been on the air for a long time, that we're not innovative and that we're not. Um, Creating programs that are, in fact, um, really uh, energizing and and, uh, and and innovative, and and in fact, we have uh, programs that I think are really quite extraordinary. We always win more Emmys and Peabody's than any other media organization. and um, But we do a lot of stuff that is just plain fun as well and beautifully created. And I just, you know, I work hard to try to encourage people to, um, to remember to put us on your channel set as you're thinking about, you know, what your various viewing options are. Because being a variety service, it is sometimes hard to attract people in. You're not sure, are they going to have arts on tonight or science or... Or or documentary or history or whatever, and uh, there is a certain serendipity to tuning in and finding something that maybe you hadn't thought about before, or hadn't realized was uh, quite as engaging as it is. So I I really hope that more people tune in.
1: What do you see in 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 ten years? Kind of ten. Where do you see PBS at that point? Yeah, so it's a great question. We're you know
0: getting ready to celebrate our fiftieth anniversary, and so. We've spent a little bit of time looking back and looking forward. So many of the uh, genres of programming that we appreciate today from um, uh, or not appreciate today, Mm -hmm. including reality programming, which started on public television with a family called the Louds, Mm -hmm. um, is, uh, you know, came out of public broadcasting. And I think that for us. Um, you know, I'm really interested, we're really interested in the possibilities that technology um, opens up for us. We started doing some work on YouTube um, a few years ago through um, a venture. We started up digital studios, and a lot of the people that we were seeing that we're doing really interesting um, educational work in on YouTube were all people that I think, you know, 15 years ago would have been on public television. And so uh, we brought them into our family, and, and uh, we have now more than 2 billion streams off of our YouTube work. So I, I would assume that as technology continues to evolve, we'll, we'll continue to look at Ways that that technology can be used for our storytelling. Um, Rainy Aronson, who's executive producer of Frontline, has dabbled in uh, virtual reality and and um, you know and different technologies that I think have the power to tell stories in a very different way. So I think we'd always want to pay attention to that. Um, I think that the. For us, you know, I'm looking for the next generation of Ken Burns. I think mm-hmm. ten years out, um, you know, more diverse voices I think will be important. But I think as much as I'm paying attention to, you know, how is the media industry shifting, and what are we thinking about? I'm as as focused on what do we need, need to hold on to? What are those um, What are those um, guiding principles that? Uh, should inform the kind of content that we're building. And I think if you look back, I mean, obviously we look very different than we did 40 or 50 years mm-hmm. ago, but you could see something and then say, yeah, that looks like something that was on public television. And I, and I hope that looking out, they they should be great stories because, again, that's what we're all drawn to. It started from the time that we sat around a fire and <laughs> you know, told stories to one yeah. another. So I think the great stories, that's that's important. But great stories around subjects that matter and that, um, that help us to understand each other better, that help us to make better decisions about the world that we want to live in, or at least the communities in which we want to live. And I think that, and that can inspire us to our better selves. And I, I would hope that whatever we're doing 10 years out would continue that, that same DNA that has been part of the, the whole history of public media.
1: Well, I think that wraps it up. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And I'd just like to remind everyone to subscribe to The Exchange as well as our sister podcast, Views Room, at iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. And please also check us out each day at breakingviews.com. I'd also like to thank our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joiner, for making us all sound good. So this has been Breaking View's The Exchange, and we'll speak to you next week.